Hello, I'm Ian Cheeseman and this is Forever Blue, your weekly Manchester City podcast supported by the Charles Louis Group, which is an advisory business advising on development, finance, mortgage advice and estate agency. Really, really grateful to them as well. Uh, Dave is the man who uh, runs that company and has sorted out some sponsorship for this particular podcast. And without him, perhaps there wouldn't be a podcast. So thank you very much. They started out life as a simple mortgage company. They offered buy to let, first time buyer, moving house, mortgages, that sort of thing. But they now provide support for the whole property transaction process, including an independent estate agent and an expert commercial financial team and a renowned mortgage team. And there might be people uh, listening to this at the moment who've been umming and ahhing about moving house during lockdown. Uh, my sister-in-law actually has moved house during lockdown. So I know it is possible. Uh, I know it's not as easy as it once was. So if you go and have a look at their website, charleslouis.co.uk, you will find a company who are local to the Manchester area, not that that would exclude you if you're from further afield, who may want to try and support you in some way. So have a look at the website. It's got a phone number on it, and I'm sure that they will be more than happy to try and help you negotiate the muddy waters, which is moving house in a pandemic. Now then, uh, tonight's uh, podcast, of course, we're going to focus on the FA Cup victory at Cheltenham. Um, and I have to mull over the events of the last uh, few days. Three members of the, the team, um, Andy, Harlan and Amy. So thanks very much to the three of you. Um, I will start by saying that I was privileged to be able to go down to Cheltenham for the game. So I was actually inside the stadium. It's the first match that I've actually, first team match that I've attended since the Manchester Derby back in, in March. So a long, long time ago. Um, so very, very lucky to be there. I have to emphasise, by the way, that uh, despite what some people might have thought, I wasn't there on some sort of con or something like that. I was actually working for Sony Sports India, which is a mega, mega company. They have Champions League and FA Cup rights. So they're the equivalent, really, of BT or Sky, but on the continent of India. And I've been doing a little bit of work for them remotely via Skype from home during the Champions League. Um, but just recently, um, uh, they obviously expanded a little bit more and asked me to go to Cheltenham. And I was honoured and, and delighted to be able to go there. I have to say, before I went, um, I was quite excited when I got the shout to go. But the closer it got to the game, the more I thought, am I really going to enjoy this? And it's going to feel very strange. I've been to other games, commentating for Curzon Ashton and for Oldham Athletic. And they've been behind closed doors, so I know what it's like, but much, much smaller scale and obviously not my team. This is City's first team. So I went down there um, in the car on my own, as you do, of course, in these circumstances, um, which was very different than the normal experience. I'm always travelling with other people. So a lonely drive down there, stopped to the services. Services were deserted, all open, but deserted. Hardly a car on the car park. And then got to Cheltenham and actually went to the race course where the big meeting happened, um, the, the so-called super spreader, just before the first lockdown happened. I thought, how can you be here in town and not go there? Um, and I'd never seen the race course, so I looked at it from a distance where people were stretching their legs. And then I went to the game and I filmed it and I, and I was very uh, unsure as to whether to put this out as a vlog or not. 
because I don't have a sponsor for the vlogs anymore and City obviously um, uh, stopped the vlogs as soon as the pandemic struck. Um, but I thought, well, I owe it really to fans to show them what the experience is like. Um, I couldn't just sit there doing it and obviously I didn't have fans to speak to, um, but I did have the opportunity to at least do something. Normally, I would have perhaps filmed players coming out down the tunnel and all that, but I was on air. I spent an hour on air talking to the uh, the good people of India. Uh, but at least I could film something that would give the people a flavour of behind the scenes. That is available on the Forever Blue YouTube channel. If you've not seen it, then go and have a look at it, and it does give you a little bit of an insight. If I'm lucky enough to be able to ask to be asked to go to any more games for Sony TV India or indeed anybody else that wants to hire me because I'm a freelance, I'm available. Um, I'm not going to say I'm going to keep doing these vlogs. Uh, I think that was probably very much a one-off just to give you a, a flavour of what it's like behind the scenes. But um, hopefully people will, will take something from that. Um, the match itself, obviously, there are some people, believe it or not, who think that the game is behind closed doors. You can hear this artificial atmosphere which you get on TV. But I can assure you, in the stadium, you don't hear any of that. Um, it is what it is, which is a very strange, surreal experience of the players shouting to each other. And occasionally you will hear some of the substitutes or the coaching staff shouting, mm -hmm. especially if there's a, a controversial moment or whatever. But it is very hollow. And there have been a, a number of people who've contacted me who said, oh, I wish I could go and kind of carry a suitcase for you and, and all this sort of stuff. And and I get that. And, and I can't deny that when the game was actually happening, it felt great to be inside a stadium and watch the game in proper 3D, you know, complete vision of the, of the pitch at all times, which is the way I prefer to watch a match. But all the other stuff, all of the connection to people was completely missing. I sat in a, in a whole stand, a whole block, completely on my own, um, you know, as isolated as you possibly could be. In fact, I was probably safer at that game than I've gone shopping. Um because I, because I was very little contact with anybody. Um, it isn't what you think it is. It isn't, the, it, isn't, it isn't the joy that you think it is. I mean, I just uh, caught a little bit of Dancing on Ice on television, which if you're listening from, from the States, for example, that's Dancing with the Stars in your country. And they have artificial sound on there. But the reality is that they're just dancing in an empty stadium. And that's the same everywhere at the moment. So you've sort of got this brand of, Happy clappy. Um, when you watch the TV coverage, for example, of football, everybody's talking, you know, all the experts and all the analysts are talking about the game in exactly the way that they would do if the game was in a full stadium. Um, they don't make any reference whatsoever to the lack of fans and the influence that that might have on the game and the difference that that makes to the, the experience. The professionals, I suppose, are doing the job. And if somebody was paying me to do that job, if I was working for City, analysing the games, or BT, or Sky, or the BBC, then I'm sure I would be exactly the same and have to do it that way. But in my position, um, I, I'm trying to reflect honestly what is going on inside the stadium. So in a moment, we'll move on from my experience, although the three... Uh, people who haven't spoken yet, my guests on tonight's podcast can can say something if they want to do. And then we'll go on to analysing the game just as everybody else does. Um, so there's a bit of everything for people today. But I just wanted to try to share that unique experience that I had with you, with, with the fans. So um, that's my 
little rant done for, for now. Um, what do you three have to say? I mean, do you want to comment on anything I've said? Or do you just want to start talking about the, the performance in that game uh, down at Wadden Road, as, as I prefer to call it? I, I can see how it... Because if you don't watch the um, it with the sound on, it just sounds like what you'd watch on a Sunday morning, like when the kids are playing and the dads are shouting and the mums are shouting. Um, okay, obviously you can hear Pep more over everything. Um, I hear, you know, I hear him a lot, and obviously they've got to apologise for the swearing and stuff because you do hear some of it, and you know, industrial language as they're calling it on the telly, which I think is quite funny. Um, but no, I can imagine it be like really surreal, like not hearing fans or you know I imagine it being sounding really really weird to you I mean the fan I think the players also are aware of the difference um, you know big style but they're not really encouraged to speak about it because obviously they want to keep the product going uh, what what are you going to say Andy I think uh, Cheltenham uh, Chorley Marine I think it would have been very different with fans and they didn't need 4,000 people to get them up for that game yesterday. And that's a sign of their professionalism at that, at that level. And I have to say, I thought they conducted themselves with a plum and uh, took us really quite close, perhaps scored too early. And um, a bit later, it might have been a bit more difficult for us to make the changes and, and, and step up. So I've seen your vlog from the from the stadium, and uh, I recommend everybody has a look. It's uh, an insight which we wouldn't normally get, and um, very strange, very surreal. Um, so the way you describe it, it sounded like you're going on a first date in trepidation <laughs> you know, to me. It was quite funny, um, but uh, no, I think you know yesterday, one o'clock noon. I'm thinking. You know, we'd be down there getting tanked up. Jägermeister would be flowing, probably stopping down overnight. Uh, the weekends are just not the same as they've, they've been for years. It's tiring and, um, you know, we can't really see it changing anytime soon. So just to get a little bit of an insight, you know, thanks for that. I think uh, I appreciated seeing a little bit more than just the sterile stuff that you get through the television. Um, and yeah, you know, watching a match actually without having to just see through the lens of a camera is what I miss massively because I think you see the game very, very differently. And I'm sure that that was something that you would have you, you would have seen differently yesterday than from all the games we've had to watch through the television. As we start to talk more and more about the game, and obviously Harlan will no doubt want to analyse the performance of players. One of the things that uh, that I was determined to do, being given this unique perspective to be back in a stadium, was to actually look at players off the ball. Um, because when you're on TV, when the game's on TV, you're really only watching. And I know TV, modern TV, shows you're on a bigger screen. You can probably see a bit more than we once did. But still, you know, you are limited to watching the attack when the team's attacking and not being able to see what the defenders and the goalkeeper are doing or vice versa, um, what sort of runs are being made off the ball that are out of the, the screen. And that was very interesting for me today and uh, yesterday, I should say. And um, 
certainly I was very aware when we, as I say, when we talk about the, the football a bit more of a glaring, obvious mistake that City were making in the early stages, which was partly to do with personnel, but also partly the way that the game was set up. Um, but certainly to the headline from, from all that of what you were saying there, Andy, is that seeing the game in 3D with that mega vision that we all take for granted, no matter where in the stadium are, you can be behind the goal, you can be up in the gods, you can be down low down, you still get a diff completely different perspective than you get on television. And all the people that tell me that actually it's better watching on the TV, you'll never, ever, ever be able to convince me that it's better watching on the TV. That is my last resort. So whenever this normality returns, um, you won't get me changing my mind about that. I'll still want to be inside the stadium. Harlan? Yeah, it, it's it's quite mad, really, what you've said, Ian, because it's something that we, we, we almost take for granted, that, that when, when there's 55,000 of us in the Etihad on, on a Saturday or, or when you're away from home, we, we, you'll come out of the ground and you, you, you'll have a chat with someone on a tram on the way home and they'll say, oh, well, you've got a guy asking you, how did, how did Mahrez's goal or how did Bernardo's goal look from where you sit? And it's just that it's just that question that you get asked. How did it look from where you sit? And you tell them, and you go, "Yeah, it's a cracking, it's a cracking finish from where I sit." You really saw him whip his foot round it. And you go, "What? He, he bent that in, did he? Because from where I sit, it looked like he." And it's that it's that chat you have with the fellow fans, and the fact that the game is different to to different people that sit in different areas of the ground. And it's kind of like you can you come away from the game with your own conclusions of how that game went, and that's probably why you have so much. Um, that's why on Twitter, when we were when we were going to games, it was maybe there were a lot more different opinions of goals and how things had happened flying around because people had watched it from different angles. People had seen things. Some people had gone and got a pint and left the left the concourse. Sorry, gone to the concourse early, so they missed the goal. So they were asking people, "How did it look? What was it like?" And I do kind of miss that. But um, just to go back to what you said, Ian, I, I obviously I went to Everton Collieries in. Um, pre-season and they obviously get around 400, 400, 500 fans. They can get up to 2,000 in that ground for, for a big game against the South Shields or someone like that if they really wanted to. Um, and obviously it's nothing like the Etihad full. But when you're in a ground like that, I mean, I went to a game against um, uh, AFC, oh no, sorry, City of Liverpool um, just before the second lockdown in, in November. And um, it was, it was it had four, three, 300, 400 fans. And you couldn't hear what you'd heard pre-season. So it was like, wow, there's fans back in the ground, there's people shouting, giving the liner a bit of jip, you know, giving the players a G and up, shouting, balling, having a laugh, having a great time. And when I compared that to what I'd seen in the two games against Rochdale and Rylands in the pre-season, I was like, wow, it's frightening that this is how it must be when, when we're playing or when we go back to playing now, that for those players, there was only me, Danny and Keane in the ground with a couple of Abbott and Coles officials and a couple of other people in the ground. You can hear everything. You can hear the players communicating. You can hear the manager shouting. Um, we, we were sat underneath Brian Barry Murphy, the Rochdale manager for the Rochdale pre-season game. And he said he was having a night off. And I'll tell you something, he didn't have a night off at all. All you could hear was him shouting and bawling. He said he handed it over to his assistant for the match. And what I was hearing was what I love. And I was hearing a manager from League One tactically giving his team pep talks throughout the game and everything like that. And I think that for people that maybe wondered what it would be like to hear what goes on in a match without fans in the ground, you're getting the opportunity to do that now. But it is nothing. It is nothing without being in there, is it? It is just, 
it's gut wrenching now for me to keep watching games on TV because I only used to watch away games on TV. If I didn't go to the away games, and I, and I didn't get to many. But um, I'm watching every game on TV now. And for me, when I watched a game on telly, I always knew that the week after I'd be going. So it was one of them where I didn't mind it as much. Now it's every match, three times a week sometimes. Um, I even went out and bought a little chair that I could sit on to, to feel like I was at the game, as mad as that might sound. Just I'm sick of sitting in the same spot. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a weird way. You know what, Harlan? You make you make a, a very good point actually, which which you can debate, you know, between you as well. Which is, I took a mate of mine called Tim to a game. Um, Tim's not a City fan. Uh, Tim's a an Oldham Athletic fan, um, and he'd watched a lot of City matches on television, uh, but he hadn't actually been to a game for a long, long time. So I managed to get him a ticket. And I stood with him, because obviously you do stand in the end, you know, where you go, um, Harlan. So I was stood with him, and uh, the, at half, when it got to half-time, he turned to me and said, you know what, no matter what you see on TV, you can't, you can't grasp in your mind how quick and athletic these footballers are and how quickly they move the ball around and how accurate everything is. You don't get, because you don't have that depth perception on television and you don't have the true... Um, feeling of the speed of it all he says I never really realised how good it was and how good City were now there, there are a lot of negative opinions flying around from City fans at the moment from about Riyad Mahrez just to pick him out for example and in the first half of that game he stood I think it was the first half but anyway one of the halves he was playing right in front of me because I was in one block, I was on the side where the cameras were, the side where the, the fireworks went off, right behind me. And I was literally, because it, they're only small stands and I was sat over an entrance block, I was within probably five or six yards of the touchline, but I had quite an elevated view, perfect view, that when Laporte sent a long ball across field to Riyad Mahrez, I've, ne I've never really had such a close-up view of his control of the ball. It is exceptional, exceptional. And we can we can all talk about winning games and losing games, and we can talk about tactics of who does this, that, and the other. But sometimes, I don't know if I'm the only one who feels this way, but just as Tim went away with this feeling of admiration, not a, he didn't talk about the goals, he didn't talk about the score, he didn't talk about anything like that, just a, an, a, an admiration for the athletic ability of the footballers. And when I went away from that ground yesterday, you know, I went away with one of the, the things at the top of my mind was, boy, has that Mares got control of a football. Boy, has he got something that very, very few people have because he was doing it right in front of me. And that's something that doesn't sometimes come across on television, does it? Can, do you, any of you three ever take away from a game other than the scoreline and the and the feeling of, you know, the tactical feeling, just that sheer admiration of watching in the flesh what a footballer can do. I, I yeah, knew what I, you were going to say. Sorry, Amy. I knew what you right. were going to say and then straight away. I knew exactly what you were going to say. I knew which player you were going to pick out. I, I sit where I sit. You know where I sit, 118. And when, when Mares played in, I think it must have been 1819, um, right in front of me and Jess, you know, he, he, I think he played four or five games in a row. And I said to Jess, I literally can't wait to get in there to watch us play today, but to watch him at our end for 45 minutes pluck the ball out of the sky with the most elegant, amazing 
I call him I call him super glue to me. Like the, the the way he plucks a ball out of the sky, whether it be on the run, whether it be I mean the best one I've ever seen him do is the one that comes across, like you say, but it's fizzed. It's not a long elevated ball. It's a fizzed ball from a De Bruyne or a Fernandinho that's fizzed probably about a meter or a meter and a half off the ground. And he literally he takes it on his right foot and he sweeps it into his own path down the touchline and then chops someone back, chops someone back again. And he did it three or four times in a couple of games. And I thought that is absolutely exquisite. And for, for, for the criticism he gets, which you can argue is right or wrong about the predictability sometimes and about the, the, the decision-making sometimes, when we talk about touch and when we talk about elegance on the ball and when we talk about pure quality, he, for me, is in the top three all-round quality football players in our squad. And it just upsets me sometimes that he doesn't quite get the breaks he needs or the credit he sometimes deserves because he makes a couple of mistakes in a game. Sorry, what Amy. Were you, what were you going to say, Amy? I was just say, um, obviously, where I'd sit in the, in the, in the gods, um, obviously, when it's cup games, me and my dad get moved around. So it's nice to see the pitch from like different angles. And you can't imagine how... It's quite funny, really, because like where I sit, they look like tiny little people. And then when you go down, you can't imagine how like, you know, the muscles on these men, you know what I mean? Like the, how big they are and stuff and how they just like, like you say, how athletic they are and how they can just move like dead fast and everything. It's like they're on ice sometimes. They just like manage to skate past you. And it it's weird. It's like watching horse, horse racing. Like they're there one minute and they've gone the next. It, it's... um. It's quite mad. So I do like, even though I love my seat up there, it is nice sometimes in the cup games to get moved around so you get like a different perspective of the ground and and the players and stuff. Um, but yeah, like I'm the same with Mares. I've always liked him. I liked him when he was at Leicester. I thought he was a good player and I was quite happy when they said they were going to sign him. I was, you know, I was quite happy about it. But it's like you say, though, certain <coughs> players, certain players get criticised all the time. Yeah, if Kevin makes a makes a mistake, nobody says anything because it's Kevin, you know, and he wouldn't do that sort of thing. But I've seen Kevin quite a lot of times go to shoot and he hits one of the opposition players and he does it quite a lot. But nobody says anything because it's Kevin. But, you know, like Sterling makes a mistake. Oh, my God, what's Sterling doing? Mares makes a mistake. My daddy's one. He's always picking on Sterling all the time. And, like... It gets on my nerves. It really does get on my nerves because they forget the good stuff that they've done beforehand, you know. And that's in that, you know, it's a sh- it's a shame that people are like that, but that's the way of the world, isn't it? You'll you'll never please everybody. You're you're older than these two, Andy. No offence, mate. Um, <laughs> just marginally, a, just a fact. Um, you must have oh, seen a few scapegoats down the years. Yeah, let's get the Mares thing out of the way. Um, the best game I've ever seen him play at the Etihad was not in a City shirt. Let's get that one out of the way. He tore us to pieces. And I think, unfortunately, there's too many of us who remember that day and somehow hope that he could play that level a little bit more regularly and consistently. And I think, you know, that's all I want to say about him. Um, the scapegoats, yeah. Uh phew. 
the trouble is, once you, I mean, for me, for me, Colin off, I couldn't stand him. <gasps> it, it didn't matter what he did. I'm sorry, I know he could score goals from 30 yards or free kicks, but I could never see anything good. And I just think it's a very personal thing. You just somehow, somewhere, there's a player that just gets inside you, under your skin, and you just can't, for the life of you, um, shake it off. Um, and as far as the perspective of the the athleticism, so I'm able to watch the match from a couple of different locations in the ground, as you know. Um, and I think it's completely different what you see on, you know, tier tier one halfway line, and you see absolutely the best view, in my opinion, of what you're talking about, because you, you're getting the same view that effectively the press box again, and you can reflect and, and see far more of what they're saying because you're sitting exactly in the same place. Whereas if I'm in tier two, back away towards the uh, away fans, back at, back at the tier, it's a very different bird's eye view, more like what you see from the television cameras. And then when you're at the way end, you know, we're, we're always, when we're applying for our away tickets, trying to think, you know, because you know the ground's pretty well. You don't get anything lower than row this or that because it's terrible. Uh, make sure it's that block or with this, you know, we're all trying to coordinate because you just know that <clears throat> when it comes to kickoff, people are just going to try and get in those seats anyway, whatever seat ticket you've been given or whatever. So, yeah, I do think it makes a big difference if you're wanting to watch the game properly. Um and you do get a different perspective. And, and I, you know, the scapegoat thing, I just think that's always going to be there. Um, you know, I, I don't know of anyone who thought Colin Bell needed to kick up the bum. Um, but, you know, and, and to some extent, we've even all probably had a, a word or two about Sergio or David Silva. I, I, for one, always was critical when I'm watching the match on the halfway line about how slow De Bruyne is to get back. And I've said that on previous podcasts, but he's, he's, you know, he's the world's best midfielder. So it depends really, I think what you're, what you're looking and what you're expecting from a, from a particular player. Um, but in the end, really, it's about the team performance. And just to touch on this week, what I've seen on, on Saturday and, and earlier in the week when we played Villa was patience and quality coming through. And I think that's, that's what, has been there now for quite some some weeks, and is is the reason why we we're, we're we're in four competitions, and we're in the uh, in the mix for the for the title. We've got this solid so, you know solid defence, patience about our football. We've got players who are definitely rising this season. I think you mentioned in your blog about Gundogan. I have to agree with you. Um, I know you're reluctant about praising young Foden. I think yesterday, um, I think he did actually show some determination to uh, to really place himself, and he's had a lot of press today. Of course, it would Cheltenham. If he could do that against Liverpool when we play them, it'll be a different discussion. So, yeah, uh, that's my take on it. Well, you, you, now that you've led me into. Phil Foden. Um, the thing that I observed at the game um, yesterday, and now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but because I had this overview, um, which I rarely had recently, the first 60 minutes of the game, 
um, City's midfield seemed completely absent. Mm. And the players that were in that midfield were um, a young lad called Tommy Doyle, who I'm a huge fan of, and I can't tell you how much I want him to succeed. I actually had a little chat to him after the game, one of the rare privileges, I don't mean interviewed him, just bumped into him as I was walking out, well, not bumped into, I'll emphasise, more than two metres away with masks on, but I did actually chat to him briefly as I was walking away off the record, and I'm not going to tell you what we talked about, but um, I, I want him to succeed. I knew Glyn, uh, he's one of his granddads. I knew Mike, one his other granddad. Uh, so I feel a real attachment to him. And there were moments in the game, he took a free kick early on that was right behind. I thought, oh, what a great free kick. Go on, get in there, son. But I've got to say that his his involvement in the game was, was relatively minimal. And certainly in terms of the way that City play, which was what Andy was alluding to. And Phil Foden was the other player who was basically in that midfield role and he looked lost to me now that's my view watching him um, in the game where I could see him when he wasn't on the ball and the positions that he was taking up now later on in the game when the changes were made which was so obviously needed to me uh, Gundogan obviously came on into midfield uh, Fernandinho moved forward when Diaz came in at centre-back um, and um, the um, just, oh, my mind's gone blank now. Uh, oh, Cancelo when he brought, when on, he brought Gundogan on as well, didn't he? Brought Gundogan on. Yeah, Gundogan came on. But Cancelo yeah. came on as well, and that yeah. that that uh, he can obviously he's ostensibly a right back, but he in effect he plays in midfield because because of the way City was set up anyway. But he does it, and that made huge huge differences. As soon as that happened, to get back to Foden, Foden then went back to a position that. I think he he prefers to play in. And even though there was a long period when David Silva was towards the end of his career at City, when people were saying Phil Foden will be the new David Silva, um, I never really bought into that because um, he's a very different type of player. Phil Foden is a player who um, has uh, is improving in his close control and his ability. Showed one great dribbling run which albeit ended mm. with him losing possession, but nevertheless showed a lot of promise, mm. which can be built on. And he can take a ball, he can control a ball uh, very well, and he can definitely sniff out a goal and score a goal. And he, he scored a couple of good goals recently. That one owed a lot, the one he scored, which equalised and got City right back in the game, owed a lot to Cancelo's forward ball. But you still had to make the timing of the run, mm. you still had to be calm in front of goal and scored that goal. So I'm seeing improvement from Phil Foden, but I do think that, still think that we're getting a bit carried away. And I think when you come to selecting, this is just a personal view, which lots and lots of people will disagree with. I can see it all over social media, that in my first choice 11, um, Phil Foden still wouldn't be in it, but he is a, a very valuable member of the squad who is developing. And I'm hoping that in another year or two, um, that he will be an absolute first choice in that team. But I don't feel as if he's he's quite there yet. And as I say, I think that the problem is today was that City's midfield is normally the heartbeat of the team. It's all about pass, 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 pass. Gundogan, De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, players like that zipping it around. And yesterday that wasn't happening. It was it was Cheltenham actually had more players in midfield for most of that first half. Well, certainly it felt that way. It felt like we had a an attack, and we had a defence, and nothing in between. Well, did on, that come on, over on the TV? On on that, Ian, um, it, it, 
it was passing us by midfield. Hundred percent agree with that, and and it almost felt like we were we were giving them far too much respect in midfield. That it, we were obviously dominating possession, but what they were doing with their possession was was much more progressive up the pitch. And had, that, that's 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 a word that that I've used quite a lot when describing the difference between Rodri and Fernandinho is that Rodri's less progressive up the pitch with regards to progressive distance forward passing, and Fernand you know Fernandinho is is much better than that. Uh, than him at that, in my opinion, but they they seem to have much more ball and they seem to want to drive a bit more than we did. And like you said, we were we were a lot we were a lot less existent in midfield. Just one more thing as well, just to to, to jump on what Andy said before about the quality that we've had to show in in the last couple of games. I think that that's that's been it's been where where we've we've had to show that quality right at that moment in time. If we didn't, we would have been punished for not doing so. And we've we've turned up when it's mattered. And I think that we've we've learned a lot there, and, and we've we've developed and we've manifested that we we have to be at our very best at this moment now and seize the day, seize the moment in the game, and start killing teams off, hurting teams at that moment in time instead of letting them off the hook. And then at the end of the game, all going home, or we're already at home, obviously at the moment, and going, I wish we would have done that. What if we would have done this? We should have done that. We're actually doing it now. I think that's the difference. It's giving us less to. To, to, to say, we, you know, we would have, could have, should have after the games. To talk about the substitutions yesterday, which is something that I did a bit with a, with a red mate of mine, um, a United fan mate of mine, where he's going, uh, oh, what a genius manager. Yeah, because of something I put on my Facebook about Pep. And I said, that's genius. That's, that's genius thought processing. That's genius substituting. That, what he did to unpick the Cheltenham, the Cheltenham system with bringing Cancelo on, bringing Diaz on, which a lot of City fans would be, what's he doing? What's he, you know, no offence to old school blues or older fans, but a lot of older fans, I know people my granddad's age maybe would have gone, why are you bringing a defender on when you're losing 1-0 away from home at Cheltenham? There's a reason. I said to Jess straight away, he's going to try and change the shape a bit here or he's going to try and free someone. And by bringing Diaz on, it freed Emerick to to contribute more going forward because we know how good he is on the ball. He can drive. We see how many times he ends up on the left wing in certain games or did do when he was playing regularly. And what Pep did with the substitutes allowed other players to become freer. He brought Gundogan on. Um, he was allowed to be freed then by Fernandinho taking up that central role. Uh, when Cancelo came on, he had a direct involvement in the goal for Phil Foden. He also had a direct involvement in the Torres goal because he played the ball into Gundogan, who cut it back for Torres. Um, and like we say, Diaz helped uh, Laporte gain that um, freedom to go forward. And a lot of the time in that final 15, it was relentless from us. We constantly kept going forward and pushing. America had a lot of the ball. He was constantly trying to redirect the ball to the right wing. And he was very involved. Every player that Pep brought on played a direct part in us winning that game yesterday. And that wasn't accidental. So if you want to say he's not a genius for doing that, it was only Cheltenham, then say that all you want. But what was he supposed to do then? Not bring on the right substitutes or just lose the game 1-0 or not bring on the right substitutes, draw the game, one all, go to extra time, scrape through 2-1. He made the right subs. He did what he thought would be tactically correct. And it worked an absolute treat. And... Like Andy said, again, the quality that we had to put into the box, the quality that we had to deliver, the pass from Cancelo 
had to be inch perfect for Gundogan so it didn't go out of play. The cutback had to be quality. He knew Ben Torza was in there who'd had a quality game. If the cutback from Gundogan's not quality, it gets cleared and it's no goal. If the ball from Cancelo is whipped and doesn't beat the first man or goes too far, which we've seen a lot of the time, fly out, De Bruyne does it now and again, flies out for a goal kick, well, what we're doing, we've overplayed, whatever. Every bit of quality in the game, the substitutes, the quality involved, it was it was pitch a perfect. And that's what won us the game yesterday for me. The quality uh, we, we have. When I was discussing the game on uh, TV in my professional capacity, one of the questions that was asked to me, which is spot on, I thought, really, was why did Pep not start with his with a stronger or his strongest eleven? get two or three ahead, which is what happened against Birmingham, and then start to bring on the younger players uh, for the experience rather than do it that way around. And surely when City plays Swansea in the next round of this competition, who are a better side than Cheltenham, um, that he, he can't afford to play that type of team again, can he? I think uh, he's criticised for not giving academy players a chance. And yesterday he gave two very capable uh, players. Tommy Dorney mentioned, by the way, he can take corners. Something yeah. I saw yesterday. He's a dead ball, uh, sir. He and he really it was Bob on. And 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 Taylor's uh, I mean thrown in against a team who are bombing it in from the touchline, throw-ins. Big physical league two side. I mean, that's just what you need. And yeah, okay, maybe we didn't expect to um, have Toza make the best, the best uh, goal line save since John Stones against Liverpool. That Mendy shot should have been in. That was quality, but it just showed you how well Cheltenham played that we're talking this way, and that the, the, the Pep had to change things in order to break them down. No, I don't think it was the wrong thing to 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 play. The players we played, I think we found things out as well about players who should and, and, and still struggle to, to to perform. And I think he's got to see that. Um, it's a bit like, I always remember, you know, Ferguson could always bring on someone to change the game. It used to be the feature of United's uh, season after season success. And I think that that's one of the things that we, we have now is a really strong and capable and impact bench. So I think he knows that he can always rely on that. I think it'll be it'll be tricky at the Liberty Stadium and, and Pep's not that, not, not his memory won't be that far back, knowing just how difficult it was to claw back a draw the last time we were in the cup at Swansea. So I think he'll show them a lot more respect and play then probably a, a team that will be fielding um, for, for a Premier League game. Because I think they're that uh, they're that good and doing well in the championship. So no, I don't think he did the wrong thing uh, picking the team. My opinion. On, on that as well, bang on. If, if we were winning <coughs> the game, sorry, if we were winning the game yesterday, say Azuz puts that one in early on, early doors. What is it, 15, 20 seconds into the game, we go one 0 up. I think we had another chance after that. Azuz again. Uh, we had a couple more half chances, but say Azuz puts us two 0 up to Gabriel Azuz goals. And we go on and win the game three or four nil. No one's saying shouldn't have played Taylor, shouldn't have played Tommy. Football's all about uh, timing. Um, if things go for you, you don't say certain things. If they don't, then you know. One other thing as well, sorry, um, is um, with 
with the albatrosses that we are putting around our own neck, Ian, which is something that I know you don't like, something that we as fans, not me personally, I don't get too involved in it. I, I, I almost always try and stay away from this. But I think we, we almost build unneeded pressure on ourselves. We, we criticised the club a couple of years ago on the podcast um, about putting things on banners around the stadium during matches and building anxiety within the stadium with statistics. And there was a time where we did it against Palace just before Christmas and we got beat 3-2 with a Townsend cracker. And it would come up about five minutes before Townsend scored saying, Crystal Palace haven't won at the Etihad for this many games or we scored this many goals. We lost 3-2. There was an absolute cracker scored and them statistics mean absolutely nothing come the end of that game. Now, they are nice to look at. It's beautiful to look on your Twitter and it makes you feel a bit bubbly, if you want to call it that, for a couple of minutes. But all we're doing by doing that is building this Stones and Diaz partnership and saying they've not conceded a goal or they've got this many clean sheets. It's fantastic for us. But to continue to publicise it, all we're doing is building an albatross that is going to get bursted. One day, it will get bursted. They're going to concede a goal soon because it will happen and it'll, it'll come from something like yesterday where it's a ball into the box and it's a ricochet or it's an handball that doesn't get given, goes in the back of the net, that record's gone. And I said something to Jess the other night, I would never want us to concede a goal, but at the end of the day, it will come and it would probably do Diaz and, and Stones a favour if it did happen in a game that we won 3 or 4-1 to kind of start that clean sheet run again. And that might sound mad to some people, but I just mean that, that the more and more, you're going to start building up false, you know, not false, but senses of security that maybe are going to end up being bust in a big game or something like that, which could dent confidence again, which could, would, could, I don't think relapse is the right word, but relapse stones or something like that. If he starts to believe that it's, it's, it's a better partnership than it is. And it's great, but it could end up being a, a downfall in a sense. And not only that as well with the Foden thing, we, we had a chat the other week, didn't we? And I said, what we want to hope is that Phil Foden continues to develop and continues to learn, but that he doesn't burn out and that when he gets to his prime of 27, 28, he is the rounded player that we want him to be at 28 because if he builds the pressure on himself now or he gets this false pressure from fans or from Blues that are giving it in because they genuinely want him to do well and not because he's actually doing tremendously well, that come his prime, if he can't cope with the amount of pressure that's on him and for whatever reason he ends up tripping over his own feet, pardon the terminology, then it, it, it's going to be one of them where it's a fatality, isn't it? Let me ask you a question, uh, Amy, which uh, there's, there's two players I want to talk about. We'll come to Kevin De Bruyne in a minute or two and obviously <laughs> his absence, four to six weeks, and the games that he'll miss and how crucial he is. But just for now, we talked before about... Um, people who are sort of the butt of City fans' um, vitriol down the years, you know, the scapegoat. And at the moment, Benjamin Mendy seems to be the scapegoat, seems to be the one who's the butt of everybody. Um, I can't believe the amount of people that have criticised him in the last 24 hours. Well, I can, because it's been bubbling for a little while. Um, what, what did you, First of all, what did you make of his performance in that game yesterday? And what do you think of him generally? And do you do you think that he is becoming a little bit of a of a picked on player, or is he is his is, are they right to, to be as critical of fans? Um, I think Mendy is our new Balotelli, if I can think it that way. Um, Balotelli was obviously. Well, then why why always him then? I don't know. 
But like, you know, he's good. Mendy is good, right? He's a good footballer. But then he does something stupid and he don't recover from it. And before he obviously got injured and he was doing really, really well. But he does daft things, and I think that's the I think that's the issue because and he's he can be quite slow. I like him. I think he's all right. But then I liked Balotelli. You know, I had no I had no issues with him. I, I you know he was an idiot. Don't get me wrong, but he's a he was a fantastic footballer, and I hope that Mendy will be like that. But I think that's the problem. Is that obviously I've watched his videos on Instagram and things like that, and he likes him pee about quite a lot and I think that's the trouble is that people see him as a bit of a joke and they don't take him say it too seriously enough but when he's when he's good he's good but when he's bad he's like the little girl with the curl on her head he's he's horrid um and I think that's the issue is that he you know when he does something really really good you you forget about it because two minutes later he's done something bad and you you're like oh my god you know like he's a big lad and it was it Terori he got uh, in one of the matches and he got shoved off it off the ball. And I thought, you know, them two are quite similar build. And I thought, how's that happened? How's he managed to get shoved off the ball? That game, Amy, won it? Was it the game we lost 3 2? We were winning 2 yeah. 0 we on, on yeah. it, like, just after Christmas. Yeah, and he, he'd gone to up near to the corner flag, and I thought, oh, he'll be, he'll be, he'll be, he'll kick it out. It's fine, but it wasn't. It, you know, he got shoved off the ball, and I was. You know, it's th- silly things like that. He, you know, he 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 doesn't read the room as what you you know, like he he doesn't see what's happening in front of him, and then things go tits up. And I think that's the problem why 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 he gets scapegoated is because people don't see the good things because he does too many bad things. I am aware of the fact that obviously um, he has had some antics on social media, etc. But I don't really watch that type of thing, if I'm being honest. So I judge him on what I see of him on the pitch. And at the moment, um, for what it's worth, um, I think Cancelo is playing better when he plays at left back than Mendy is. And actually, I prefer Zinchenko, mm. who is a converted left winger. Um, so he's, in my mind, at the moment, the third best left back. Now, that isn't based on his antics on social media or his image. That is purely based on what I see, see of him on the pitch. Um, and I think I think the fans have got a point. I mean, he obviously is a very athletic, capable footballer. And I'm very well aware, as Andy will tell you at the moment, particularly, of, of the way... Uh, players, uh, you know, they are human beings. How their mental of, mental um, capabilities are affected by criticism and by and, the, and Mendy will know, you know, and other players will know when they're getting criticised. They're not oblivious to it. If he's all over social media, he'll also see the criticism that he's getting. And... He actually, he actually commented. Somebody actually said uh, not so long ago. I'd say a couple of months ago, if that. Somebody said something to him on Twitter. And he actually commented back saying he he apologised to this person. I don't know who it was, I you know fan or whoever it was. Actually said something about him yeah, being S H one T, and he actually commented and apologised and said I'm, I know I I know I need to do better. So he obviously does read then he does read the comments. But how does that person now know that when? Mendy'd read that and commented, how does he not know that Mendy didn't feel like crap for the next week or so? You know? I mean, Mendy's not... 
not many players retaliate. Not many players think Sterling does sometimes. He comments back when people say something. But not many of the players do. But uh, you don't well, know that they're uh, that they're uh, not feeling that. I think we've got Bernardo Silva back. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. That that's to do with Mendy. Yeah. Or rather what he said. And that's going back a long time. So I do yeah. think Ian's point about player player mental health is valid. Yeah. Um, I think that um as as much as we might wallow in it, albeit there's a lot of Liverpool players getting a lot of social media attention right now. Um, and and that won't be positive for, for them as human beings. I think on Saturday though, to be honest, just just at the war just just after the warm-up, the team's lining up and Mendy's messing about like yeah. a school kid. And that was noted and I saw that getting tweeted about. Now you know what he's got a World Cup winners medal and a European Championships winning medal in the other pocket, you know, for France. He's he's done more than most players will ever ever achieve and on an international level. So he knows what it's like to be a winner. And I think if he just knuckled down and just dug it dug in and, and proved that he's taking his football as seriously as he as he does his other image, I think he'd win a few more fans over. I'm disappointed in him. I'm disappointed in because I've been one of his I've been one of his biggest fans. I was Ian knows this. I've been, I, I was one of his biggest fans before we even signed him. I, I, I came away from the night from the night match against Monaco. We, we won five five three, didn't we? And then we, we, we went out on away goals, which still baffles me to this day. I don't know how we went out six all. I think it finished in it. But Mendy was phenomenal in both games. Um, and I, I came away going, we have to sign him or the other lad on the other side, Gibril Sidibe, who ended up on loan at Everton. Uh, he's gone back to Monaco now, but I said I want either one of them to. Jess was like, really? Do you like him that much? And I said, yeah, get that Mendy lad. We need him. I told all my mates, I said, we need to sign this Mendy guy. All, all my blue mates and that. I saw his link with him. I thought, get in there. You know what I mean? You can clearly see that the games he's had against us, he's proven what he can do. And my, 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 my reasoning for it was, we'd go and sign a player based on what he can do against top opposition. Now, if a player can perform like he did against us and we are top opposition against an English side, then my mind said, well, he can perform against an English side in the Champions League and against top opposition. Therefore, I think he'd be able to do it in the Premier League. He'd be able to do it for us. And Pep's going to try and play this explosive, as it looked like, 3-5-2 formation with two wing-backs and three centre-halves. And I think I still think that Mendy would be at his best in that because, for me, he's not a left-back. Um, he's not even a left wing back. He's a left winger. And I think, and I go back to saying what I said to, to Mark Lillis on, it was my birthday actually, yeah. I asked Mark, then I what, what about Angelino and Mendy? Um, can players be mislabeled as youngsters? Can they be, can they be wrongly positioned as youngsters and then kind of not changed or not moved and they just kind of left to play in that position, but they're not actually the best in that position? And then they just made to just fit in and sit in and do a job. And I, I think Mendy's doing that for us at the moment. When he plays in a back four, I think he's just trying to look like he's doing a job as the left back. But he's like, he may as well be a striker playing at left back because he's just not his position for me. He's not defensively astute enough. Um, and when he was playing for Monaco that night, he hardly ever came over the halfway line to do any defensive stuff against us. He was, he was, he was at, in fact, higher than Mbappe at times and higher than Falcao at times. When, when they were coming back to defend. Um, well, let's just say at this point that the jury's out on on Mendy because he's certainly a player that people are looking at very closely. And 
next two games are obviously West Brom and then Sheffield United. So two very winnable games. It'd be interesting to see whether Pep um, picks him in either of those games. But now the bigger question with the one we'll conclude this podcast with is the absence of Kevin De Bruyne on Friday. The manager admitted that he had muscle injury, a hamstring injury that would likely keep him out for four to six weeks. And people have done graphs of what those matches are. Regardless of what the matches are, Kevin De Bruyne is such a crucial player. I mean, how many times do you see him? It's like the charge of the light brigade when he comes up midfield on one of them breaks. And you just know that whatever option there is, he will thread it through the eye of a needle. He doesn't always finish the chances he should finish when he gets a chance in front of goal. But he often delivers a perfect ball for somebody else to fluff or put away, uh, depending on who it is. Uh, how crucial is he going to be? And given that United are now the, the title front runners, um, they've beaten Liverpool in the Cup and you know they're at the top of the table, etc. And I know that a lot of people are probably writing them off and saying, well, they're not going to stay there, etc. But they're getting results. And uh, the games are ticking by. We're halfway through the season now. Uh, do you worry about the absence of Kevin De Bruyne in the in this tranche of games? Because they'll come thick and fast, including the first leg of the Champions League last 16 against Borussia Mönchengladbach. He might even miss that. I, I think I think we'll miss him. I do think we'll miss him. It's it's the fact of like he sees things nobody else sees. Like he'll see someone running down the wing. And he's already passed it. To, he's already passed him. He's already passed the ball to him. He's already he already can see that. Like I think we missed him yesterday, but we are good enough to get through these these things. We've we've got plenty of good players in that side to be able to get through things. <clears throat> I mean, they said that we'd miss Sergio. I miss Sergio. I don't know about anybody else. I personally miss Sergio. Um, and we've managed so far. You know. We do need strikers. We obviously, you know, like we've said it before, haven't we? Jesus isn't 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 that you know he isn't that there yet. Um, we definitely need some. But then the rest of the team are scoring. Gundogan's scoring. Stones is scoring. Someone, you know, somebody, but the Edison up is scoring a bit. You know, like everybody's like getting in there and stuff like that. I do think we'll miss Kevin, but I, you know, fingers crossed, we we will be all right. You worried about yeah. the absence of uh, Kevin Andy? Well, you'd have to say he's definitely uh, um, a player that you'd rather was playing starting every game. I think cynic in me says that there's a discussion going on about his contract and this might just prove whether or not um, we need to pay what, what I think is expected to be paid. To, to, to such a, a lauded player. Um, we do need to find out whether or not we've got a midfield that can play without Kevin De Bruyne as well. Um, what, what annoyed me, really got at me on Wednesday when we played Villa, <coughs> was Grealish, who has more fouls committed against him statistically than probably the rest of the Premier League put together, sticks Kyle Walker in the stand and then Kevin De Bruyne, and not a single card is shown. And uh, play acting the pity, I just thought it was disgraceful. Um, he took two quality players out midweek, uh, very deliberate um, as well. 
So, yeah, okay, it's a physical game. Uh, in fact, yesterday just made me think then yesterday, I don't know if you noticed, but it looked to me as though our players missed VAR. It was as though, do you know what I mean? It's the first game where we were obviously playing without it for some time and things had happened and it was almost like they were just waiting for VAR to intervene and the, and the League Two side just carried on regardless because they don't enjoy such a, a privilege. So uh, so we'll miss VAR in some games. Uh, but I think, yeah, Kevin uh, not playing. Gladbach worries me a little bit, the form they've been showing beating both Bayern Munich and Dortmund within the last two weeks. Um, the league games, obviously there's some difficult ones, but um, the way things have fallen, we should be picking up points now with or without De Bruyne, in my opinion, over the next few weeks. So, yeah, it's bound to have an impact, um, but it's what it is. Players will get COVID still from other teams. I think it's going to be that way this season. I think it's funny you mentioned about the VAR thing. Um, because of what I was doing for Indian TV, I actually had replays as we were discussing the game afterwards, which uh, meant I could look at the freeze frame of whether mm -hmm. Gabriel Jesus was offside, for example. And um, and you sort of looked at that, and, and to me, my instinct was, no, he's not offside. But then I thought, hang on a minute. It was only afterwards that I thought about this. I thought... If I'd have been studying that for BT or Sky, they'd have been drawing these lines and looking for a toenail that was offside. <laughs> so even though as a human being who's watched the game for a long time, I'm not interested in a toenail. You know, to me, it's got to be clear and obvious, you know, the old VAR argument. So um, I, it, never, it never really occurred to me because when I was talking about after the game, I just went, well, clearly he's not offside. And it was only afterwards that I thought, I suppose if you look at the toe cap of his boot or something, he might have been. So maybe it's a good job we didn't have VAR or maybe <laughs> one of them goals would have been ruled out. Go on, Harlan. How, how, how are City going to cope without Kevin De Bruyne? I think, well, he's, he's massive, isn't he? He's massive, but... Um, he's only about six foot, though, I think. Yeah. <laughs> he's massive. And I don't yeah. think he's, he's, you know, he's particularly heavy. And I, I yeah. assume you mean in terms of his presence on the field. His presence on the pitch, Ian, yeah. He's... Uh, he, he's he's fantastic. He's he's just outrageously good, isn't he? And I'll use outrageous in a positive way. Um, that's how good he is. The thing for me is though that that what we don't want to do is now he's back and he's been well. He's not back now. He's injured again. But when he was back and he was fully fit, it almost seemed like we were leaning on him a bit too much again at times. And I think that this will be that kind of a uh, bit like I was talking about before with Diaz and Stones. That, that reset where we have to learn how to cope without a player again. And it's not always a bad thing because I think that other players can hide when a certain talismanic player is doing very well and it allows other players off the hook. And I think this is a time now where other players in that midfield have to come out and say, right, I'm going to take the bull by the horns here. I'm going to take on the responsibility. That but I'm going, to put it to you. I'm going to put it to you, Harlan, that uh, two years ago, if any single player had been abs any single key player have been absent for City, it wouldn't have mattered. A year ago, it wouldn't have mattered. I feel as if Kevin De Bruyne has been so much more critical to us than any other player has been. That's not to, to dismiss Sergio Aguero or David Silva or Vincent Company or anything like that, but it's, it's as if our team has been revolves a lot more round him now, around one player, than we have done in the past. So the absence of Bernardo Silva 
we could cope without it. Absence of Sergio Aguero, we could cope without it. You know, absence of Laporte when he was out, could cope without it. We've even managed without Fernandinho and Gundogan and all. But it just feels to me as if KDB... I know, I know what you mean. ...different at the moment. I know what you mean because of how tight things are and how it's fine margins at the moment, obviously. I, I think the league will start to, to stretch a bit more as we come into the, the, the last final stretch of it. I actually think we'll win the league by five, five or six points, believe it or not. I'll just put that out there. Um, I think they'll die off United. Um, and I don't think Liverpool will continue to... I think Sorry, I think Liverpool will continue to drop points. Not as frequent as maybe they have done in the past couple of weeks, but I think they will drop well, ones and twos here and there. The, 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 sorry, twos and threes here and there. But with, with, with the De Bruyne absence, yeah, massive. But I think that it is time for other players to step up. 14 in a row, 18-19, uh, I think you may have been referring to, Ian, when we maybe didn't miss him as much as we could do now. But we still we still missed him in that season. We, we chased them down, 14 games on the bounds. Very, very difficult feat. Um, I think what Pep did then is being a lot more respected by even us Blues now to get 198 points in two seasons and and not drop as many points as the others are dropping, et cetera, et cetera, and perform the way we did, even without Kev, a talismanic player. But I, I, I look at this now, and you're probably going to say, wow, that's a big statement. But when it was mad, because it was an observation, I said to Jess, I went, chop Tommy's head off like that yesterday. And she went, what do you mean? I went, chop Tommy's head off. He looks like De Bruyne. Just without the same physique, Lord, that, you know, the same physique, the same build, the same movement, everything else. Maybe maybe it would be time to maybe if things aren't going well in a game and we are looking for the player that can deliver a ball similarly to Kevin or or maybe um, bring that lion-hearted attitude to a game. Maybe not start Tommy Doyle, have him on the bench in the Premier League in case the game is going away in which we think we could do with a bit of a bit of Kevin-ish kind of stuff now and bring Tommy on and see whether he can give us that delivery we need or that threaded through ball. But it seems to me that Tommy doesn't want to take as much risk as De Bruyne when he's on the ball. Kevin De Bruyne is quite a risky player in a good way, though. He'll do cutting-edge stuff that other players won't. Tommy seems to be a bit scared at the moment to maybe do that unless it's a dead ball, like Andy said, or a corner or something where he's being given the licence to whip something in. But I do think that now would be probably the time to have Tommy Doyle on the bench and use the opportunity of the absence of Kevin to maybe play other players in his in his position, but have someone like Tommy there with that lion heart attitude, that 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 lion heart from his granddad's that drive and that that inevitable quality that he's going to elicit as a City player in the future. I love your passion for Tommy Doyle. I'm not sure at this point I agree that he's ready to step into Kevin De Bruyne's shoes, but. Um, we can dream. Thanks very much to the three of you for being part of the latest Forever Blue podcast and, of course, to charleslewy.co.uk, who uh, are the sponsors of this podcast for supporting uh, this, this event, which takes place every week. Um, thanks very much for listening. Really, really appreciate that. I've, if you haven't already mentioned earlier on, I did a vlog from Cheltenham. Sorry. Yeah, from Cheltenham. I keep getting Chelmsford and Chelms. Cheltenham mixed up, but Cheltenham. Um, have a look at it. It's on the YouTube channel. And the other thing, of course, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, subscribe. It's free. Then you get notified every week when the, the podcast goes live. I did do, um, I put up an extra podcast last week, uh, which was an interview I did with Jason Manford. It isn't about football. It's an interview I did during the early part of lockdown on Tameside Radio. 
um, a radio station that I, I work for, do a column every week for the, the local newspapers. Um, what a great man Jason is. He's been doing all sorts of stuff for the community. He's been giving people lifts to get their vaccinations and, and to go and get whatever treatment they need, etc. as well as then appearing on stage in the Royal Variety performance. He's a funny man. He is a blue, but I can tell you that the interview isn't about that. But if you've not listened to that interview, and especially if you're feeling a, a bit down, like we all do from time to time, you've got a bit of time, have a listen to that as well. It's free, as I say, to download. Nothing that, that I do is, is chargeable. We're not asking you to make any sort of uh, payment for it. Have a listen to that. And, of course, we'll do another podcast uh, next week. Uh, so thanks very much uh, to the three of you. Thanks to you, to you for listening. Uh, City have two more games before we reconvene. We record the next one next Sunday evening, UK time, and it'll be available soon thereafter. In the meantime, remember one thing, if you only remember one thing this week, it's great to be a blue. Great to be a blue.